0: EMS and the program in writing, we want to extend our welcome uh, to our assembled as well as to our speaker, uh, Daniel T. Max is here. Um, uh, they always say for uh, those doing the introduction that you should be incredibly brief and disappear as fast as possible. I just want to give you a very quick overview of how it's going to work. Um, the way we're structuring this way mr max asked us to structure this is to he will do his presentation at the beginning and then he sort of wishes to be in conversation with us pretty early on yeah willing to take any kind of questions and any interventions that you might have yeah and so it's more of, um, prefers more of an interactive sort of time together rather than the kind of static i'm going to give you the long lecture and then some questions at the end yeah um, I'm actually here both to introduce and to moderate a little bit. My name is Juno Diaz. I'm a professor in the program of writing and CMS. And um, again, with a group like this, uh, no moderation I think will be necessary. Yeah? So welcome. I also wanted to welcome D.T. Max Daniel, uh, a writer who I've been following for many years, writes for The New Yorker, um, someone whose byline I've always been very excited about, Um, especially with this biography, the biography of David Foster Wallace, every love story is a ghost story, which is very fitting, because when I think about that most superb biographer, Gene Strauss's comments about the craft of biography, that what biographers end up doing is they end up haunting their subjects as much as their subjects haunt them. There's something about this phenomenal work that brings that to mind. Um, to be like most technical, D.T. Max is a graduate of Harvard University, staff writer for The New Yorker, um, the author of The Family That Couldn't Sleep, and as well as Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. And let's give a warm welcome to Daniel Max.
1: Thanks to Juno and to Jim and for arranging this um, this talk. Um, it's interesting because uh, MIT actually plays a role, as some of you may know, in Infinite Jest. It's the it's kind of a symbol uh, in the book of a, a certain kind of I don't know other otherworldly unreachability that sits a long way away from uh, Ennett House, which is the halfway house where a lot of the action takes place and the kind of slightly bizarre heartthrob of the novel, if you can call her that. Madame Psychosis actually has a radio show um, broadcast from from MIT. Uh, so um, I don't know. David never, never went to MIT. I don't know if he ever actually spoke here either, when I think about it. I, haven't, I don't remember ever having heard that. Um, but he might well have wound up at MIT, and I think MIT was always a very sort of pregnant symbol for him because you know, David was a very, very competitive guy who kind of always wanted... Um, to be tops at everything. So um, to the extent that he you know, he set his sights on excellence in academia, I'm sure that MIT was, was on his mind. I'll give you a quick sort of thumbnail on David, uh, and then I'm going to read you a little passage, uh, which is kind of a turning point in this question that to some extent we can focus on, which is the relationship between David Foster Wallace and two, one huge target and one tiny target, the huge target being David Letterman, And the tiny target being Mark Lehner, um, whose book I actually brought, because I don't know how many of you ever, you know, heard of of Mark. At at the time that uh, the events that I'll be reading you took place in late 80s and early 90s, you know, Mark was a big deal. Mark was, Mark's book, uh, which actually bears the title My Cousin, My Gastroenterologist, was on the cover of the New York Times Magazine. Uh, and his style of fiction to a very debilitated David Foster Wallace for a while seemed absolutely the way he had to start to write. And then he'll turn on him uh, with a vengeance, Um, and we can talk about that a bit, and the question of of what's a fair fight in the literary world. But uh, just starting out, David is born in Ithaca, New York. His parents are academics. At a very young age, when he's a very young age, they move to Champaign-Urbana in Illinois, where David grows up in an academic family. His father's a professor of philosophy. His mother is an English teacher, but really in a lot of ways a grammarian. Anyone who's read Infinite Jest knows that there's, there's a sort of militant grammarians in Massachusetts. I don't know if you remember that group, which Averill and belongs to, but it's clearly enough based on... Um, David's mother used to go into supermarkets, and when she'd see that sign that said, you know, uh, 15 items or less at the checkout counter, she would go up to the manager of the... The supermarket and say, you know, it, it really should be 15 items or fewer, <laughs> which you can do in Champagne, Urbana, I guess, because people, people are friendly, but I uh, wouldn't try that, wouldn't try that in Boston. Anyway, so what happens is he grows up, he's smart, about as smart as you can be in getting smarter fast. At the same time, he's a lot, it's a sort of a consistent history of mental difficulties, severe anxiety in his teens, giving way to very, very severe depression as he's graduating high school, but amazingly, you know, he kind of keeps it together with force of will and winds up going to Amherst, where his father uh, had been a student. And while at Amherst, you know, David, David basically has two massive breakdowns, forcing him to withdraw. And during the second of these, he starts writing fiction. And it's really interesting that David really doesn't write fiction before, as far as I can tell, or certainly no more than anyone forced to do an occasional composition. In a large public high school in the Midwest has to write fiction. Uh, David's really kind of a joker. I mean, his, his, the stuff he likes to do, you know, are parodies. He does, he's, you know, he's, he begins really as a joke teller. And that's kind of relevant for what's, what we'll talk about a little bit later. But, you know, when he goes to Amherst, one of the first things he does with a friend is he re, he kind of re, reestablishes the campus humor magazine, which is called Sobrina. Very much modeled after the Harvard Lampoon. And one of the pieces I found when I was researching every love story is a ghost story, a really fun parody of a Hardy Boys, uh, a Hardy Boys mystery that David wrote. You know, A lot of stuff's team wrote, you don't really know, but Mark Costello, who was his college roommate, showed me a couple things David had written sort of from beginning to end, and one of them is a very, very funny Hardy Boys parody with a sort of predictable postmodern twist that as the airplane is, you know, closing in on, I guess, one of the Hardy Boys, you know, the, uh, he reflects, well, it's a good thing, it's just a just a bunch of words on a page and not a real airplane. So you can see that the postmodernism is in his blood early. Um, one of the things he writes at Amherst as an undergraduate is his thesis. He writes two theses, one in philosophy, one in English. And that's a 500-page huh, long novel which becomes the broom of the system. So David is published really right out of college. The book, goes on to find a, find a publisher, and David heads off to a graduate program, an MFA program at the University of Arizona. Um, and one reason he goes to the University of Arizona is because he very much wants to avoid the sort of hardcore realism. He doesn't really know how a writer should write, but he knows how a writer shouldn't write. And the way a writer shouldn't write is the way that that writer's, you know, parents and grandparents wrote. So the thing he most wants to avoid is the sort of hardcore realism that you would find, say, at the University of Iowa's uh, writing program. So David goes to the University of Arizona, where it's at least as, as it's sort of advertised to him, you can do your thing. You can do your own thing. He doesn't realize that the University of Arizona writing program is populated almost entirely by graduates of the University of Iowa. And when he gets there and he starts writing the wonderful stories in Girl with Curry's Hair, uh, which is a kind of a, a medley of postmodern stories, each one trying out a different voice. So one story is in the style of Robert Coover. Uh, you know, these are all the, the great postmodernists of the 70s, really. David was looking backwards, essentially. Another one's a story in the style of... of, of, of um, uh, of uh, Barthelmy, uh, Donald Bartholmy, and then another one is, is basically an attack on John Barth. Again, a, a, today an odd target to be attacking, but at the time a figure of great size uh, in the literary community. Um, so David collects these stories as, as a collection called Girl with Curious Hair, and um, he attempts to publish them, and he gets a publisher, and through a sort of complicated series of problems, that publisher cancels the book because it turns out that sections of a really wonderful story in there called My Appearance, which is about a woman who goes on the David Letterman show, This is before it's clear that David really turns against David Letterman. And I should add, we don't know that David Letterman has even noticed any of this. I mean, we should be clear on the side. Mark Lehner certainly noticed when when David Foster Wallace started sort of wailing on him. But I'm not sure David Letterman to this day would have any clue uh, who David Foster Wallace is. But anyway, before David Foster Wallace, it reminds of an uh, interview I saw years ago where someone said that France had forgiven the United States, and I forget who the moderator was turned and said, well, I think it would be more useful if the United States forgave France. Um, So David Foster Wallace uh, turns out to have lifted much of the dialogue from the story of my appearance directly from an appearance by an actress named Susan St. James on The David Letterman Show. Uh, And that's questionable from a sort of legal point of view, but it's even more questionable that he gives this actress a Xanax addiction, which she doesn't possess. So anyway, the publisher basically cancels the book. David is thrown into a crisis. He has been drinking heavily since, um, well, sort of for a couple of years. And he has been basically a heavy marijuana user since high school, when I think he first started using it to treat his, um, you know, his anxiety. So David begins to realize that he doesn't have the constitution to be a writer. And moreover, he's already written everything he can think of writing. So at the age of 27, David is at a really true dead end. And being David Foster Wallace and finding, searching around for a solution, he decides, well, if he can't be a great writer, he's going to be a great philosopher. And if he's got to be a great philosopher, he's got to go to a great philosophy school. So he applies to, I think, Harvard, University of Pittsburgh, a couple of top philosophy departments, gets into Harvard. And at the age of 28, uh, as he says in a letter to John Franz, and, you know, packs up his Get, his get Smart Lunchbox... Uh, and trundles off to school again. But he really doesn't have the personality anymore to be a graduate student, uh, and he is an addict. He's, he's, I mean, he's drinking relentlessly, really. Uh, he lives in Somerville, and he lasts all of, I think, eight weeks before he has to figure out a way, how's he going to get out of this situation? He's now a graduate student. He doesn't want to fail, doesn't want to embarrass himself in front of his parents. So he goes to the Harvard Health Services Department, and he says that he's thinking of hurting himself. And David had already attempted suicide a couple of times in his life. So it was very credible from David. But I think what he was really doing was I think he understood the system well enough to know that if he said that, they'd have to send him off to some sort of, uh, some sort of ward or, or, you know, unit where he could be watched. And so he'd get out of the problem of the fact he hadn't done his homework. I mean, he hadn't done his homework for weeks. And he really didn't want to sort of, it was easier in a way to face the mental health institutions than it was, you know, to face, to face John Rawls. Like he just, he just could not, For him, academia was where his life was and where his prestige, his self-prestige was. And so he had to get out of there in a hurry. So David, anyway, he goes to McLean Hospital, which is, you know, associated with Harvard. And one of the things I couldn't figure out as a biographer was why he seemed so little disturbed to be at McLean. And and I came to realize that for him, it was a, a way, a kind of successful exit. Like if he, if you couldn't be a philosophy student at Harvard, well, you could at least be a mental health patient at Harvard. I mean, it was a kind of a lateral move because he's really fairly content. It's almost like he treats it like a kind of yado of mental health. I mean, he expects to go back to the philosophy department. Uh, you know, and I, I, think, I think he felt at this point that he was, he would write. His model, I think, was William Gass, who's a philosopher slash novelist uh, at Washington University, St. Louis. But he's mostly thinking he'll be, he'll be a philosophy student. He'll be a philosophy professor. He'll go back. you know, one reason he wanted to be a teacher was for the health insurance. And so it'll all all work out well enough. So he gets the bad news from McLean that they don't think he should go back to being a student, that he should go to a halfway house. This is is the key moment in David's creative life, that he he should go to a halfway house. Uh, And one way or another, he winds up at a a fairly tough halfway house called Granada House, which is really just across the river that way, not far. Um, So let me just read you this section. And then... This is sort of the moment where I think David, redis- David discovers the voice that we know that, you know, those of us who, who love Infinite Chess know is David Foster Wallace's voice. Um, and we can talk a little bit later, uh, and I would love questions about you know how that relates to some of the other David Foster Wallace's we know. Granada House was on the grounds of the Brighton Marine Hospital near the Massachusetts Turnpike. Wallace found it funny that a marine hospital would be nowhere near water. The compound consisted of seven buildings Seven moons orbiting a dead planet, as he would later call it in Infinite Chest, all leased to various substance abuse groups. He met Deb Larson, the director, at his new temporary home. Tall and blonde, she walked with a limp. Drunk, she had fallen down in her kitchen, hitting her head, causing a partial paralysis. And even then, she hadn't stopped drinking. Wallace respected and liked her at once. She was pretty and smart, and gave him a link to an old life that was still his present. You could almost see Harvard from the top floor of the building, and it's true, you can if you if you look across the river, you see the, those little buildings of Elliott House and Lowell House, the river houses. Recovery facilities tried to control the stress levels of their participants. And one activity that they generally prohibited was school. Think about that for a moment. Wallace had no choice but to call the philosophy department at Harvard and ask for a leave of absence. He was too humiliated to go back and get, and, and get the vegetable juicer, a gift from his mother that he had left behind in the department office. And now he's expected to find low-level work. Wallace, whose only real skill was teaching and writing, cast around and was able to get hired as a guard at Lotus Development, the large software company. The Granada House rules stipulated a 40-hour work week, so Wallace got up at 4.30 in the morning to take the green line and worked until 2 p.m., walking a vast disk packaging plant in Lechmere, clocking in his whereabouts every 10 minutes and twirling his baton. Or so he later said. I don't actually think that's what he did. Because there's there's a story David wrote that's never been collected that that was published in the Allegheny Review. And in this story, there's a security guard who walks around twirling his baton and clocking in his whereabouts. Uh, And I think David just liked the image from a story he'd written, probably comes, like much of David's early writing, probably comes from Thomas Pynchon originally, uh, and just used it for his own life. I think what he actually did, because there's a separate letter, where he says, "What what I'm doing here is looking at video screens. I think actually, like every security guard in the world, well, in, in, the, in, in America, his job was to, like, look at a bank of TV screens, you know, those grainy black-and-white images and just see if anyone's walking out with, what? Uh, the, wasn't this the era of those sort of three-quarter-inch floppies or something? Like, they could have had them all, it turns out. He would tear pages out of his notebook and send letters to his friends, maintaining contact with a small group of editors and writers who were vital to him. The Lotus experience, he recalled in a later interview, reminded him of every bad 60s novel about meaningless authority. But at the time, he bore it well. Give me a little time to get used to no recreational materials and wearing a polyester uniform and living with four tattooed ex-cons, and I'll be right as rain, he wrote a friend with ironic brio shortly after arriving. But in his heart, he was stunned. I am, he wrote, one of his old Amherst professors, Okay, though very humiliated and confused. He was sharing a barracks-like room with four men, one of whom, he wrote his old sponsor, this is his old 12-step sponsor, had had a stroke while on cocaine and had a withered right arm. Mr. Howard, he told his editor at W.W. Norton, his book publisher, everyone here has a tattoo or a criminal record or both. To his professor, he reported, most of the guys in the house are inmates on release. And while they're basically decent folk, it's just not a crowd I'm much at home with. Heavy metal music, black T-shirts, and Harleys, vivid tattoos, discussion of hard versus soft time, parole boards, gunshot wounds, and Walpole, Massachusetts' toughest prison. He continued at his security job for more than two months. And then, unable to bear getting up so early, he quit. He went to work as a front desk attendant at the Mount Auburn Club, a health club in nearby Watertown. His job was to check members in. He called himself a glorified towel boy. But one day, Michael Ryan, a poet who had received a Whiting Award alongside him two years before, came into exercise. Wallace dove below the reception desk and quit the same day. His friends were accustomed to his exaggerations and inventions over the years. They came with his clownish, hyperbolic personality. But when they visited him at the halfway house, they found that what he said was true. He had stepped through a sort of looking glass. His friend, Deborah Spark, a fiction writer, remembers sitting in on a group therapy session with Wallace one day and being amazed to hear someone recount killing someone else while drunk. All the same, he found his place. Order, no no matter how far in the context, was always easier for him than the unstructured world that lay outside. His sponsor was named Jimmy, a motorhead from the South Shore, as he called him to a friend. Wallace read the big book, the founding text of Alcoholics Anonymous, and enjoyed making fun of its cheesy 1930s vocabulary to his friends. Tosspot, Dave Sheen heels, boiled as an owl. He laughed at them, but he also knew he needed them, or he would die, Mark Costello, his college roommate, remembers. And if Wallace found himself in unfamiliar territory, the residents didn't know what to make of him either. No one really cared for his cleverness. He was, to them, a type they'd seen before, someone who, as Wallace would later write in Infinite Jest, tries to erect denial-type fortifications with some sort of intellectualist showing off. He was back in high school, trying to figure out his place in the pack, It's a rough crowd, he wrote his old Arizona sponsor, and sometimes I'm scared or feel superior or both. Yet a piece of him was beginning to adjust to the new situation. He remembered his last failed attempt to get sober and how he was no longer writing and asked himself, what did he have to lose? He came to understand that the key this time was modesty. He knew it was imperative to abandon the sense of himself as the smartest person in the room, a person too smart to be with the other people in the room because he was with the other people in the room. I try hard to listen and do what they say, he wrote his old sponsor. I'm trying to do it easy this time, not get an A+. I just don't have enough gas right now to do anything fast or well, and I'm trying to accept this. Not that things came easily. The simple aphorisms of the program seemed ridiculous to him. And if he objected to them, someone inevitably answered him with another, telling him, for example, to do what was in front of him to do or to take it one day at a time, driving him even crazier. He was astonished to find people talk about a higher power without any evidence beyond their wish that there were one. They got down on their knees and said the thankfulness prayer. And Wallace tried it once at Granada House, but it felt hypocritical. All the same, he liked to quote one of the veteran recovery members, the group known in Infinite Chest as the Crocodiles, who told him, it's not about whether or not you believe assholes. It's about getting down and asking. There were many times when he was sure he would start drinking again. I'm scared, he wrote his old Arizona sponsor. I still don't know what's going to happen. He asked his friends for some words of encouragement. And just when he thought he would give up, a letter arrived in which his former sponsor recounted the last time he had been in detox. They gave me Librium, he wrote Wallace, and I threw them over my left shoulder for luck. And I've had good luck ever since. The image Wallace would write his sponsor years later was just the good MFA caliber trope I'd needed. Stunned as he was, he understood from the beginning that his fall from grace was also a literary opportunity. He had been hypothesizing beforehand about a nation enthralled to its appetites, and here he was living among its casualties. So in the midst of his misery, he was alive to the new information he was getting. The communal house he would later write in infinite jest, reeks of passing time. It is the humidity of early sobriety, hanging and palpable. Wallace was known for sitting quietly, listening as residents talked for hours about their lives and their addictions. Later, those same residents would often be surprised to find that though he had heard their stories, they had not heard his. But this was the sort of access to interior lives a novelist could not get elsewhere. Today, you can sort of get it just by listening to people on their cell phones. But back then, it was a lot harder. He was finding, as he later told an interviewer, that nobody is as gregarious as someone who has recently stopped using drugs. Wallace and his notebook were a familiar sight in the communal rooms and recovery meetings, trapping little inspirations before they could get away. Within a few months of arriving, Wallace had already drafted a scene centered on one of the most intriguing residents at Granada House, Big Craig. Big Craig, called Don Gately in the novel, was one of the house supervisors and sometimes the house cook. Craig was in his mid-twenties, sober and just huge, as Wallace would later write in Infinite Jest, looking less built than poured, with the smooth immovability of an Easter Island statue. He'd grown up on the North Shore and been a burglar and a Demerol addict. Friends closed elevator doors on his head for fun when he was a teenager, a detail Wallace would, of course, put into Infinite Jest. But he turned out not only to come from a different world, but also to be quite sensitive, And it did not take Wallace long to see the possibilities in a lug with an interior life. There was a sort of Dostoevskian gloss to him, the redeemed criminal. And Dostoevsky was on Wallace's mind. He wrote to his Amherst professor shortly after arriving that going from Harvard to here was like House of the Dead, with my weeks in drug treatment composing the staged execution and last-minute reprieve from same. The reprieve, he hoped, would spur the same creative surge as it had in the Russian... So that's a section from the book, sort of about, I guess, about halfway through. And in fact, the um, time in Granada House does spur a creative surge in David. And that surge is very much to write infinite jest. He had begun infinite jest. Pieces of infinite jest date from before David's time in Granada House. He's actually working on bits of infinite jest back when he's a graduate student in Arizona. This is something I learned researching the book. Uh, Back as early as 1987, when he's... 25 years old, he applies to Yaddo saying he wants to work on a novel called Infinite Jest. But the novel is either, I mean, I have his correspondence, and much of his correspondence from Yaddo, and he doesn't work on Infinite Jest. I have no idea if it was just a dodge to get into Yaddo, if he intended to work on it, but he had so many other projects, or conceivably, if the stories in Girl with Curious Hair, in some way began as parts of a novel which at one point, which the novel Infinite Jest, they were at one point Part of *Infinite Jest*, although it's hard to imagine those stories fitting in *Infinite Jest*. But what he does do after his time in Granada House is he creates what's largely, in a lot of ways, the second half of *Infinite Jest*, um, which is the section in the halfway house involving Don Gately. And Don Gately is a figure unlike any other in David's writing, uh, and I think a figure in a lot of ways unlike anyone else's writing of the time, who um, you know has no ironic it to him. I mean, he's simply a guy suffering. He's a guy who's in Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's just trying to survive without you know, he, he suffers a gunshot wound uh, and he refuses to take medication and one of the sort of key scenes in the novel is Don Gately lying on his back, trying desperately not not to give in and get some sort of narcotic pain reliever. He, it, uh, David writes about him abiding in the moment, you know, which is sort of a, an AA type term. Like he could, if he could just get through this moment Get through the next moment, um, in a certain way. Then I think that uh, David's the high point of David's fictional uh, assault on iron, irony would have to be the Don Gately scenes in *Infinite Jest*. But you have to remember that I mean *Infinite Jest* is a really two-book smushed into one, and the whole and a lot of the scenes involving Hal and Condenza and the Tennis Academy, you know, are much more. They're much more like David's early work. Uh, than one would expect. And so you have to ask yourself, well, how against the irony was David, actually? And, and let's, do, let's try and define irony somewhat here. I mean, you know, I mean irony is a literary technique of, of, of long standing. I mean, Franz Kafka's stories are ironic. Don DeLillo's fiction is ironic. And I don't really have a very good definition of, of irony. I suppose I would say that I would define irony in this sort of situation as being that there's a voice in the re- there should be a voice in the reader's head to understand the writing, which is not readily apparent from the writing. So in other words, you know, when you read Franz Kafka's fiction, you're, you're understanding it not in, a, in the way you would understand a realist novel, but you're bringing a whole frame of reference involving, you know, hopelessness, bureaucracy, and alienation, and he wants you to bring that to his stories. And similarly with DeLillo, you know, if you give a Don DeLillo book to a not particularly sophisticated reader, you, you get a response often, like, book's very boring, the book's very flat. More sophisticated readers bring a whole kind of discourse and complexity to his or her reading of the novel. So, David, I don't think ever David never turns against Don DeLillo. God knows. I mean, if anything, he he wants to be his his best friend and pen pal. Um, but he does turn against writers like Mark Lehner, So, I think and and, and against Letterman. So. I think that the irony that David turns against uh, at this point, you can find it pretty well delineated in an, in an essay that he writes around the same time. And that essay, which was published in the Review of Contemporary Fiction, which is, a, which is, to, um, you know, is to the New Yorker what David is to David Letterman. It's a tiny magazine. Uh, and I don't even know if it still publishes. But they did wonderful work around the late 80s and 90s. And they found David really before anyone else cared about him. Uh, and anything David wanted to write, he could write. Um, And one thing he wrote was a long, long essay called A Unibus Plurum, which is essentially where David lays out. It's at the same time as he's beginning... It's really a year after the section I read you. So he's both writing this Don Gately stuff and writing a kind of anti-ironic manifesto. And so in there, he basically talks about... um, uh, He basically talks about irony as a prison. And sometimes he's quoting an academic named Lewis Hyde who wrote a book called The Gift... Uh, but other times he's just sort of taking things out of the, in the air. He says that what what looks like referring to irony, what looks like the cage's exit, is actually the bars of the cage. Um, you know, he basically is saying that irony, this stance that my generation has adopted, is a prison. You know, it looks it looks like it looks like freedom, but it's actually yet another kind of jail. Um, uh, and uh, at the same time, you know, he's sort of throwing various writers under the bus as he begins to rethink what not just what good fiction is, but what a good stance is vis-a-vis the world as a whole. And he he says uh of it's funny, you know, he Mark Lehner is somebody he he reached out to um just before going into Granada House. But by the time he's like in full dudgeon writing A Unibus Plurum, he also writes a letter to his his editor, uh he's uh this wonderful letter, Michael Peach edits him at, at Little Brown. And he and David comes you know, David's actually very practical. My favorite David Foster Wallace. Everyone thinks of David as kind of this Luftmensch, this um, this guy, you know, Saint Dave. And since his death, I think that's becoming but David's actually very practical. He was a little bit of a schemer, which I, I don't say that critic as criticism at all. I think I think you know, you need to be a bit of a schemer. And if you started out writing the kind of stories David wrote in your MFA program, you know, you'd be a lot of a schemer. But David um, When a a woman came up to David, I think a a young woman, shortly after Infinite Jest was published, this happened to him all the time. She comes up to David and she says, "You know, I bought your book at a used bookstore, and I read it, you know, in three days, and it's changed my life. And all I want to do now is be a writer like you." And David turns to her and he says, "Don't ever tell a writer you bought his book used." (laughs) So. David, when he takes over at Little Brown, I mean, when he goes to Little Brown, Little Brown starts publishing, he's got a problem because Mark Lehner is one of the top writers at Little Brown. And he's edited by the same guy who's just agreed to edit David. So David gets on his, you know, on his bicycle trying to figure out what's going on because he's this massive essay, Unibus Plurum, about to come out with a six-page attack on Mark Laner, And what he says is interesting. He doesn't, he doesn't disown his stance. He just says that he thinks of Mark Lehner as a hidden writer, this is in the letter, you know, for whom writing is a defense mechanism. So anyone who knows David's early writing, well, that, that's a pretty good description of David. I mean, David and Broom of the System, is absolutely brilliant comic whirlwind of a novel. I mean, there, it's about defenses. It's about layer after layer of identity. And every time you peel away a layer of identity, there's, there's another joke. Um, so, you know, the question then is, is what goes on and when? So I, I have sort of limbed for you David Foster Wallace, ironist, and what I would like to do uh, if Juno you know is game, is to throw it open a little bit more to back and forthing and questions that might be presented um, and that kind of thing. Thank you. Thank you. So, could you say a little bit more about Letterman? And yeah. That got under, his skin? Yeah, got under his skin. Yeah, you know, I mean, okay. So you got to remember back, peel back the pages of time to mm-hmm. the late '80s. Uh, David was one year younger than me, so that I, so that it's not hard for me to peel those pages back. We get to the exact same page. You know, at the time, what David Letterman did, which was to take a sort of lightly amused view of culture and politics uh, and life in general, was felt so perfect for us. It felt so much the solution to the problem of what do you make of the sort of vastness of America? What do you make of the idiocy of political system? What do you make of the incongruities of a culture that basically ignores its intellectuals? All these things. I mean, that was Letterman. You know, it's really what Colbert, in a way, does today. But it was so new. And David, you know, first, of course, and this is very typical, all of David's loves, I would argue, follow very much the kind of uh, the The kind of the the model of addiction, so he falls head over heels in love with David Letterman when he 's still at Amherst and just shortly after that 's how he could have remembered an entire scene to steal it for a story um, and then when he f- senses that Letterman has not set him free you know because because David is personally unable to sort of conquer his demons and Letterman and that stance towards society. You know, that amusedness. I don't know. I mean, Letterman still sort of does it. I mean, it's a little bit tamped down. It's a little bit more Hollywood now. Uh, you know, when he finds that doesn't work, he kind of, he begins to blame the guy who was giving him the medicine. In this case, you know, he begins the, the sort of, to dislike Letterman. I mean, there's, a, there's, in this wonderful story in Girl with Curious Hair, which has the purloined Letterman story. There's a character who says, I, I don't see this dark, fearful thing you seem to see in David Letterman. This is the actress who's on, who's on the show. Um, because her, her, it's almost like David's talking to himself. Her um, husband is saying, like, be careful, you know. Uh, but one of the key lines in that story is, is the husband says to her that, like, knowledge is no, no longer important now. He says what's important is being seen as being aware. In other words, not even being aware, but being seen as being aware, right? I mean, it's curious that this is this was David's personality to a T at one point. I mean, David comes out of um, out of Illinois as as a wisecracker, as a wise ass, as, a, as as a guy who you know is 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 laughing at you within himself. I mean, he was always polite. He had this Midwestern exterior. He'd always call people Mister or Mrs. You know, it's one of the funny stories when he met his first editor, Jerry Howard. He was like three years older, and he called him Mister Howard. You know, he called his agent. Miss Nadell, and she was one year older than he was. So, um, But anyway, I mean, I think that's Letterman got under his skin so that not that many years later he calls him the angel of death. Uh, he calls him the angel of death. He actually calls him that uh, a couple of times in different places. Um, you know, I, I think that he might, if he were, where David had come of age now, Well, the culture is so different, but I mean, Colbert would have been the person he would have targeted with this sort of, you know, Colbert will sit there and life will completely pass. He's untouchable. You know, it's all a game. Uh, And I think for David, why that became so difficult is if you think about what are the lessons that David learned, basically David credited his 12-step program with saving his life. And the thing he kept learning in this 12-step program, you know, was that you have to take your life seriously. You have to be present. You know, you have to engage with every, as if every moment was desperately serious and sincere. And so, Letterman really couldn't fit into that um, paradigm at all. Uh, in later life, David watched The Wire. You know? Sonny, <laughs> I think we're going to
0: put on mics, So, do we have a mic? <clears throat> ah, excellent. They want
1: to. Uh.
0: keep
2: Sorry. Yeah, it's good. I'm one of the CMS master's students. Really interesting talk. One thing that I'm curious about is that in the Infinite Jest, there is this device of this all-consuming videotape that's so engrossing that you become addicted right. to it, lifeless. And it, at the time, I'm sure it was sort of a device that was used to get some ironic distance, ironic maybe being a loaded word in the context of this talk, but to gain some distance from the the issue of substance abuse as, as usually kind of modeled as an addiction problem. What I'm wondering is, since the book was published, some of these debates about media effects and about addicting media, especially specific video games right. that might be addicting, specific internet platforms that might be all consuming and addicting it's really been elevated to the level of a serious moral panic in some asian countries where there's a question are, are teenagers losing their childhoods to specific media entertainments so I'm, what i'm wondering is if the book were written today yeah. and david foster wallace was still alive would he have, have approached the, the question of kind of media and media effects as an analog for substance abuse in the same way Or would he have seen that this needed some more precision? I I
1: mean, it's a a good question. You know, David always said his one real addiction was to television. Um, So I don't think he saw it that much as a metaphor, at least when he originally wrote it. I think he thought it was real. But I think he probably acknowledged that what was real for him could be metaphorical for other people. You know, the other complexity of it is that what what worried David most really was advertising was the insincerity of um, speech. And in a lot of ways, he felt that television, you know, the pabulum of television was itself a kind of advertising because it sort of gave you know, his definition of advertising it told you what you wanted to it, it told you what you wanted to hear so that you would buy something. And so by extension, you know, he felt T V programs did that too. They made stories too easy. You know, what literature did that TV didn't do was, you know, it 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 made life difficult and complicated. It didn't just tell you the story. And one of his big objections actually to Mark Laner later uh, was very much that, you know, he was delivering a kind of advertisement in, in in book form that what had seemed to him so fresh and kind of genre bending in My Cousin, My Gastroenterologist was just... David's big issue was, like, you know, you, you, if you behave in order to be liked, then you're not yourself. And so, by extension, media that behaves in order to be liked. So, in terms of video games, you know, I mean, the truth is... It's always hard, I think, to explain this, but I don't think David had the kind of mind where he necessarily would have cared about video games if it didn't bother him. I mean, look at David's relationship with the Internet. Like, David lives into the Internet era. I mean, he he dies in 2008. In a lot of ways, we think of Infinite Jest as a book about the computer age, about... I mean, there's there's a brilliant critic named Sven Burkertz whose early review of Infinite Jest was precisely about how, although the book wasn't about the computer age, it sort of captured the sort of disassociations and fragmented information... So the computer age, reading this review today, you think, I mean, my God, Sven, you're a genius. I mean, because that's exactly what the end, you know, it wasn't so clear in 1996 that's what the internet would, would grow up to be because the web was barely established. But, um, so, you know, what was David's attitude towards the internet? He didn't much like it, but it wasn't, one thing he said to someone was he, he didn't, much, didn't much care about the internet because he had spent, he'd seen enough advertisements for one lifetime already. It was a reference to sort of his incessant television watching when there were, you know, four stations when he was growing up in Illinois. And so I don't think, you know, he had assistants who would do his research on the Internet. You'd think this, like, perfect ready-made metaphor would have, you know, somehow resurfaced in David's writing. I can't think that there's... Oblivion would be the place where you might see it, the last story collection. Is there any mention of the Internet in Oblivion? I can't remember. Jonah? No? Anyone? I I mean, anyway, clearly there's nothing so strong that we can't... He would what? It would have been slight. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been slight. So I think you know, the funny answer is that in you know, some ways we draw more metaphors from David's fiction than I think he was willing to draw. He insisted it was about addiction, yes. I mean, he, wouldn't, he, he would have said, yes, of course, this is about addiction. But you know it's not literally about, he, I don't think he was worried about the use of video cartridges to addict people. I mean, it's one of the different addictions in Infinite Jest. You have drugs, you have sex, um, and you have you know these these video cartridges, um, so I don't know if that you know guesses what we'd have to guess, but I, I, I can't see a, an editorial from him in the you know in the New York Times about the the, the dangers in Korea. I know what you're referring to the sort of dangers in Korea of, of video games and how you know this was a move that the culture had made inevitably you know dating from. I don't know, Hill Street Blues or something. I'm trying to think of the shows David loved because it's relevant to this irony question. But when David sort of gets over watching everything nonstop, you know, when David's writing Infinite Chess, he moves from Boston to Illinois. And you guys may know this story, but he would buy a television, and then he would watch it for about a week and binge on it, and then he'd put it out on his curb or give it to someone else in his 12-step program to give to their kids. I mean, probably about a dozen of these things. So much so that the local paper sort of writes about how one of these professors at Illinois State is, you know, leaving his televisions out on the curb, which I mean, I think, you know, must have struck them as insane behavior. I mean, nowadays, you know, you see televisions put out on the curb all the time because people buy flat panel TVs, but at the time it really seemed wrong, I think. It was deeply wrong.
2: Hi, Scott Ostwell, uh, research manager here. Um, so forgive me for not knowing his biography well, but did he encounter any serious resistance to his anti-irony that he had to actually engage with? In other words, did he find himself in combat over these issues?
1: Well, I mean, that's a great, it's a great question. I think irony is the kind of thing that nobody sticks up for when it's, sorry, when it's um, held out for, you know, for lamb-basting, lamb because if you think about it, you know, I mean, Letterman was one of those shows that had, kind of had everyone under its spell, and, you know, and it just seemed so special. But, you know, the, the, the sort of cultural changes, I think, that resulted from the Letterman generation weren't, they weren't so thrilling to people that people, you know, we have to have more irony, you know, they have to have more irony on TV because, you know, we want a motivated, we want a really motivated generation. I can't think of anyone sticking up for irony. I mean, people have stuck up for literary irony, which is different, I mean, Kafka's irony. I mean, we, we really don't want a world without irony. I, I'm not, you know, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think he was. He was talking about this, this kind of, you know, I always think of that um, Elvis Costello line about um, a little man lost in a, in a big man's shirt. That was the kind of irony, you know, so, so tragically cool, you know. Um, uh, you know, in fact, Less Than Zero, the Bret Easton Ellis novel um, would have been a good example for David, you know, from the Elvis Costello title. Um, would have been a good example for David of a kind of literary irony that was dangerous, that was affectless. Uh, although he actually read less, you know, I don't know if you know this, but there was a when, when my book came out, there was a big, like, tweeting war with, where Brett Ellis uh, kept writing about how David was the most overrated writer of his generation, and people just read him to feel smart, uh, and he was getting kind of sick of the whole thing. And, you know, everyone on David's side immediately, like, tweeted that David you know, first of all, that, that Brett Easton Ellis, you know, couldn't, you know, wasn't worth, you know, right, uh, would, should worship the ground that David walked on. But the other thing they pointed out was that David would have hated Less Than Zero, and it's not actually true. I mean, David devoured Less Than Zero. He came along when he was a graduate student. David was very, very eager to make his mark. He admired the use of voice in fiction. He loved the use of voice in fiction. He really, in a way, didn't care, You could tell the story of Himmler with a good voice, and he would admire on the level of craft. And Brett uses a terrific voice in Less Than Zero. It's unmistakable. Once you hear it, you never forget it. So he didn't dislike Less Than Zero. But it is true that when he writes these later letters, when David David at some point understands himself differently, partially through the experiences we're talking about, but also because I think he also becomes a better-known writer, and he begins to think a little bit about what a, who, what a writer and who a writer should be in the world. In a way, he, he doesn't when he's 24 26. You know, and I think he begins to recognize that the way he's going to, that the work of a writer is very much the work of, sort of the opposite of the work of an advertising publicity person. And for him, then, Brad Easton Ellis, like Jay McInerney, these names from the mid-'80s, you know, they're all, they're not serious artists. Like, they may have gifts and tricks, but they're not serious artists, and he won't take them seriously.
2: Uh, Kelly Kreitz a visiting scholar here, um, comparative media studies, and I'd just be interested to hear you talk a little bit from your vantage point, um, being very familiar, of course, with David Foster Wallace and also contemporary fiction. How do you see him fitting into sort of his project of? writing against irony or it sounds like initially the narrative that I'm hearing or the argument that I'm hearing from you is, you know, he starts with rejecting realism and then maybe irony is this thing that he turns to next and then maybe he moves on to trying to create something new after that. Um, so how does that fit into the larger picture of, of American fiction um, yeah. in his
1: lifetime? And well, I mean, the first thing I'd say is, you know, we haven't talked about the books David wrote after Infinite Jest. So he writes a book called Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, which is a kind of complicated... Uh, he writes in a letter to one of his old teachers, he says it's a feminist parody of feminism, um, which almost nobody who's read it would say. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's really a portrait. It's, it's done in this very odd, brilliant book, this question answer format, where an unnamed uh, woman's unstated questions are then answered by men in kind of institutional setting. So the idea is these guys are in some way, you know, cases of rapists or abusers or something. I mean that's why they're sitting there answering these questions. Um, and that's most of that book. It's not all that book. The story of the depressed person's also in in that book. I mean to some extent story collections can be sort of, you know, catch as catch can. And so there's some stories. David very I wrote some very brilliant letters that I, I quote in Every Love Story is a Ghost Story about why, like, the depressed person should be in brief interviews with his man, but it doesn't make immediate sense because the depressed person is about almost the opposite, really. But, um, and then he follows out with this story collection called Oblivion. Uh, you know, and Oblivion is where when people think about David and how much people cared about David at the time of his death, Oblivion is really where he lost, I think, most of the readers he had gained with infinite jest. And it's a book that's very hard to summarize. There's a couple of stories in there that are really kind of unforgettable. There's one story called Good Old Neon, which is really about a a man who's racing to commit suicide in a car. Uh, and obviously, there's a whole different valence for us now, as all of David wrote several stories about suicide. Um, but by and large, they're very ironic stories, certainly in a Kafka-esque sense, which is to say that you feel there's another voice you need to have in your head, I think, to, to read them with pleasure and with sense. Um, they were many of them outtakes from the novel that was published after his death, *The Pale King*. I would argue, like *The Pale King*, is also, in a way, uh, you know, it's ironic in a Kafka-esque sense. I mean, it's certainly not realism, and it's also not *Infinite Jest*. Dave, David always argued that *Infinite Jest* was a realistic novel. Um, and there's a wonderful letter he wrote to Sven Birkerts, this critic, when he's working on it, where he says he always he thought of it as being a Henry James-type melodrama. Uh, edge-of-the-seat melodrama, and instead it was mired in the sort of Pomo formalities that had so weighed down his Girl with Curious Hair collection, the one that has the the Letterman story in it. Um, So I don't know that David saw, you know, David, I think, David's nonfiction makes a much clearer argument against irony than his fiction ultimately does. I mean, you have this figure of Don Gately, but I don't think Don Gately, in any way, shape, or form, this, this, this reformed addict, this almost Christ figure, clear, right out of Dostoevsky, um, re- re- reappears in his fiction in any, in any way. I mean, I can think of sort of small... But then again, if you look at The Pale King, I don't know how many of you have read The Pale King, but you know, it's set, it's set in an IRS agency, um, and its main point is sort of about mindfulness and about how even the dullest pursuit... Or especially the dullest pursuits can help take you to a level of mindfulness and awareness that you know the larger noise of the culture prevents you from achieving. Um, so in that sense, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm curious if you have any any like thought on this because you're writing fiction now. I don't know what David's, what is David's sort of, you know, handprint on writers today, or or you, or anyone. Name name any writer. and grab a microphone when you do it. My
0: comments are so brief, I doubt the microphone will be necessary. I mean, I I think that those are one of those questions that um, it's too soon to sort of get an idea on. I think that one always has to be incredibly careful about the way an artist impacts a society because it's never linear. And you sort of, you would never... Would you have ever have imagined that what happened to, um, think about the the importance of Executioner's Song, think of the importance of his first novels and how the career of um, Norman Mailer has ended up. You know, if you'd spoken to people in the 70s, you would have thought that Norman Mailer would have this enormous and continuous impact on the society. But, you know, I've, you look at 400 dissertations in that period and not one of them will be on him. And so that doesn't mean that his effect will not recur, but that these, things are, these things are such complicated issues. I think that uh, one of the things that he has, I think at his advantage is that a very large, um, you know, he has a very lot, lots of paratexts that are following him because he's got a lot of ink coverage, and there's a lot of interesting stuff that's going on with David Foster Wallace. So, even if it's not at a, the level of artists being influenced, I think critics are going to have a lot of stuff to chew over. Yeah, you know?
1: I, yeah. I mean, I, I think what Juno says is, is true. It's very, it's very hard to tell. It does seem like there was a period. Well, it seems like almost every fiction writer, younger fiction writer than David, has to engage with him and read him at least to some extent. Like, there's something about the voice that and the stance that has really attracted, maybe only to ultimately reject it. Um, You know, I noticed in sort of the coverage of Every Love Story as a Ghost Story, there was one review by a writer named, I think, Joshua Cohen, who I don't don't know him. But he's a short story writer. And he was sort of arguing, I don't know if he was arguing, successfully or not, that we were living in the post-David Foster Wallace era. Whereas a lot for most many many readers like we're just going into the David Foster Wallace era, you know the, I think another way that what Juno's sort of asking is like will 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 David date the way I, I would argue Mark's books Mark's book feels very very 90s. I mean I can read you a little section of it, but uh, you, you really you know I mean it's it's broken up into these stories and one story is about. Uh, uh, um, you know, uh, Kamikaze airline pilot, and others about a lead singer for Brazil's most notoriously nihilistic samba band. I mean, it all feels very, very of a period. But, I mean, I think I would argue he, Mark, Mark perhaps got more lost in the sort of, in the moment, in the in trying to make something so urgently now that he lost the other perhaps function of literature, which is, you know, to be of interest 20 years later, I think Infinite Jess, you know, one of the paradoxes is that I feel David's reputation rests very much on Infinite Jess. It was the only novel, you know, he completed during his lifetime that, you know, that he took seriously. Um, and so I think a lot of what will or won't happen for David really has to do with how much other writers, what they get out of it. And I do think the model of, or the idea of Dostoevsky is very, very appealing to writers, especially, I think, in American culture where that there's always this divide between the entertainers and the completely, and sort and the, of and the invisibles. You know what I mean? Like, if you're not an entertainer, you're invisible. You compare, you know, the size of an audience for David Letterman to the size of an audience for David Foster Wallace, even as widely read as David is. So how do you solve the problem? Well, I think for David, and this was something I think, that, you know, if you could invest your writing the way Dostoevsky did with, Dostoevsky used Christianity, and David wasn't particularly Christian. But if you can, if you can in some way grab something deeper than just the act of entertainment or distraction, you have a stance that, that both gives you a presence in the culture and allows you to write. I mean, it allows you to write and feel that what you're writing is, that you can be heard. You know, and I think for David, a lot of the issue was, well, Girl with Curious Hair is a famous publishing disaster. And, and although that sounds trivial because it's such a good book, I don't think it was trivial in David's mind. I mean, the book was first canceled and then it was resurrected when his editor moved to a new publisher and it sold 2,200 copies. I mean, 2,200 copies is, 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 you know, I, mean, I can't explain how small that is. Um, but small even for book publishing. And so I think he felt, you know, part of what moved, a lot of move, things moved him into this, into this new stance. I mean, among the things that moved him into this new stance was John Franzen, for instance, who was already telling him that Mark Lehner wasn't the way to go. Uh, and another, uh, I think, Mary Carr, the memoir writer who was dating David for some of this time, was also saying, like, you know, basically what David wrote about Mark Lehner, which is that he's a distance writer who's hiding from himself, was really, I think, what Mary was telling him about his own writing. So, you know, I mean, when you ask, like, well, will he be read? I, th- I think he will be read. I think that, I think you know, I was right that the, there's a lot of academic interest in him, and that's probably a good thing in America, where I think academics are so important. Once you die, you know, who's going to carry your writing for it? I mean, I think of Saul Bellow all the time, you know. Uh, Saul Bellow is a writer who completely fascinates me. Um, and I interviewed Bellow late in his life uh, when he had, um, he'd gotten, like, into a bit of trouble over, his last book, Ravelstein, is a completely beautiful novel in which he had said that his friend Alan Bloom, who wrote The Closing of the American Mind, he suggests he died of AIDS. Anyway, it was, this, it was a dumb little controversy, but the, but, what, but I think what, what Saul Bellow was struggling with so much at the time, and I could see it when I visited him, he was at BU, uh, was, am I going to be read after I die? I mean, he was, was 85 or so at the time, and he was struggling to figure out how do you, you know, how do you find an audience in the next generation and I mean I, personally I, I don't understand Mailer I don't understand how he to me Mailer seems somebody who's more likely not to be revived you know that, that he he's so closely intertwined with the 1970s that he's almost more of a figure almost less of a literary figure than a cultural figure um, in a way that I'm trying to think of another example of that but you know Victor Hugo I don't know whatever I'm just throwing one out there but, and with David, you know, David really, David wasn't that interested in the things that, like, David was interested in writing. I mean, he went every day he went into his garage, even when he wasn't writing well, and he wrote. I mean, that's, that's what he did. And I think your question is right. Like, is, he either stands or falls as a writer. A writer, other writers read and readers read.
0: Yeah, I think we have time for two more questions.
2: Okay, I'm Judy Shotland from BU, and I read your biography a little while ago, um, and I can't remember if you talked at all about um, where a, a lot of the things in Infinite Jest, you know, you we learned from you where they came from. Right. But um, did you did you learn anything about um, the this whole thing with the Canadians?
1: Why? Why the Canadians?
2: Yeah, that whole that whole theme. Yeah. So
1: there's one of the sto- One of the um, aspects of the novel uh, is that there's a Canadian terrorist group, wheelchair-bound Canadians, who are trying to. Um, uh, basically, what's happened is the the U.S. and has forcibly kind of uh, annexed or allied itself with Canada and Mexico, and that the the, the Quebecois, uh, there's a small separatist group in Quebec that are trying to reestablish their freedom. And one of the things that the US is doing is is this is a very Pinchon-esque image, but they're we're sending toxic waste from I think dump stations north of Boston flying, you know, flying over the border into into Quebec. Um, and it's just an aspect of the novel that's probably the least loved, I'd say. Uh, and it's actually his his editor, Michael Peach, in an early letter says there's no part of this novel I less look forward to reading again than the inter, <laughs> inter-American hugger-mugger." But, you know, I mean, biographically, David's mother came from Canadian, half-Canadian family. But I don't, that doesn't explain. David took high school French, you know. I just thought he, you know, there was, was a piece of David, this is why the sort of the subject of the lecture is a little, the, 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 what you should take away from the lecture should be a little fuzzy. He's like, David liked to joke. He thought it was funny to have feral hamsters in his novel I think. You know, and every time Michael Peach would try to cut one of those things, you know, David would come up with a long complicated explanation about why, you know, you know, as Freud would say why there are no such things as jokes, you know, why it was necessary to have this battle. I mean, because one of the truths is you could excise that entire portion of the novel and not really change what most of us think of the novel uh, as being about. I think I think you know the conversations between Maroth and Steeply, the two secret agents on the hilltop. I mean, you know, they're uh, in some ways they're just. I mean, they are the themes of the book, and they're they're good to sort of pull out and teach. But as as in, as scenes, they're difficult to read. You know, and I'd argue they work, but they but, but they got cut way down from the original from the original novel. I mean, you know, I just don't know that with David, you have to make an argument that everything is really deeply either deeply biographical or deeply meaningful. I mean, one argument you can make for Infinite Jess is that it's sort of a novel. This is, I think, what Sven Birkerts was picking up on. There's a little bit of a quality of accidentality to the book, which I think is deliberate, and which does sort of feel a little bit like what it's like to be on the Internet. Um, you know, things, people come and go, they disappear for hundreds of pages, um, you know, pages. And then they show up again. And you're, it's very hard for you to know, especially in the early parts of the novel. I think this is why many people put the bookmark in at page 70 and you know, don't go back to it. It's very hard to know where you are and what, what do you have to care about. Like you know, your ba- that basic novelistic moment, you know, uh, uh, you know, let the reader be introduced to you know, August Carver, the beginning of The Way We Live Now. I think you know, like, this is where you put your attention. Like, that's not what he gives you. I mean, he, he, he keeps knocking your attention around. And I think that's actually one reason the book feels very current. I don't know if the stuff about the wheelchair assassins feels. I mean, after nine eleven, all of that became for a while felt very weird. But I think it's fine. I mean, I think it's fine now. I mean, it's you know, it's a little goofy. Um, but again, you know, I think at least David would have argued with the sort of importance of of that. Um, but uh, but biographically, yeah, he had you know, he spent his summers in Maine. I'm sure that his mother's family, you know, used to do funny Canadian accents, you know, everything, so that thing went on. His parents, they, they were potato farmers, and they were in New Brunswick. And I, I can only imagine in New Brunswick, like, you know, how you spent the evenings was doing imitations of, of you know, Quebecois. I don't I'm just guessing. <laughs> one more. I, I guess the last question, too. I'll just make a pure guess. Maybe one more? Do you know was the the MC...
0: Um
2: I read somewhere that David Foster Wallace considered Infinite Jest more of a tragedy and he was surprised when people received it as a comedy. So do you think he meant Infinite Jest
0: as kind of a novel that went, that went beyond irony or
2: and if not then what did he see a novel that went goes beyond irony doing?
1: Well, it's true that he, he was surprised by how many people emphasized how funny Infinite Chest was. I don't think they're really talking about that stuff. I think they're talking about the, the Tennis Academy scenes, which are kind of funny and wonderful, and there's a kind of spryness to them that, you know, wasn't, I think, core to what David wanted people to take away from the book. Um, but I think fundamentally, he, I mean, he saw the book, well, in that letter to Sven Berges, he talks about, about a melodrama, but I think, he, I mean, to him, it's, an, it's a wake-up call. It's meant to be a, one of those novels that sort of tells you there's an emergency you know and this is this is the emergency this that this culture and 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 this people are suffering under the weight of you know not of addiction and the addiction you know comes in equal parts from the culture and not being able to really confront you know the culture like equal parts thinking that irony is the solution I mean what 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 all the characters in um, the successful people in the halfway house have in common is an absolute lack of irony. You know, I mean, they're, he says somewhere, I think it's an interview, he says that an ironist at an AA meeting is about as welcome as a witch in a church. Um, you know, it's... But this is David's own project to, to cure himself. And so by extension, it's his project for how to cure the culture. In later years, you know, I don't know that David talks very much about infinite just one way or another, actually. I mean, there's, at the 10th anniversary... You know, I think you can understand this. He's invited to a number of 10th anniversary celebrations. And um, David writes to someone he doesn't much want to go back and celebrate a book he can barely remember. But you know, he starts the novel, The Pale King. This is one thing I learned in writing Every Love Story is a Ghost Story. He starts it almost immediately. I think most people thought that he wrote brief interviews with hideous men. He wrote the stories in oblivion. And then somewhere in there, he started The Pale King you know so maybe it was 3 or 4 years of his life the end of his life but no i mean he st- he starts it almost immediately after infinite jest and you know you think about it i mean david was a guy who was both addicted to praise and deeply mistrustful of praise and i think he was very confused as one can imagine he would be after all the praise of infinite jest a lot of it from people who hadn't read the book i mean that was the thing that drove him crazy he was like you know he would be interviewed by journalists you know, who would say, tell me what you think about the buzz around Infinite Jest. And, he, and now his objection, he writes this in the letter to DeLillo, is like, these people are the buzz around Infinite Jest. Like, why are they, you know, they couldn't have possibly read the book. There's one wonderful letter where he talks about how, it's not quoted in Every Love Story The a Ghost Story, but he talks about how um Harper's Bazaar is running an interview with David in and a little piece about the book. And he says, and he basically says, like, who... Who the fuck who reads Harper's Bazaar is gonna um, is gonna work their way through a 1,200 a difficult 1,200 page novel? Um, and I was actually the one who assigned that piece. <laughs> so I found it. In, I, I'm looking through his letters. I'm like, oh, okay. You know. So and the answer is, you know, I was the one who would work my way through the <laughs> 12, 1,200 words. Um, I think we're. Do we have one more? We're good. We're. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Pass. I pass the microphone. The, uh, microphone.
2: Um, we touched on this briefly, but I was wondering if you had any insight into where the inspiration for David Foster Wallace's stories in brief interviews with hideous men came from, um, if they're from his experiences in the halfway house or
1: no? I mean, so brief interviews like there's there's these they're very very creepy men, you know, one of whom like picks up uh, women who get off of airplanes and can't, you know, if they're not met at the gate because the guy didn't show up, like he cruises in there. And picks him up. There's another one about a guy who, it's a wonderful story about a guy who has like a, kind of a deformed arm, which he, which, uh, like an itty bitty flipper is I think how he describes it. Um, uh, and his nickname for it is the asset because he goes to bars and he's able to use, he's sort of able to sort of get women to feel pity for him. Uh, and he uses the pity as a, as a, as a means of seduction. Um, you know, I mean, the, David saw himself as a very manipulative person. You know, I mean, he saw himself, and that was his huge thing about. It, this is a guy who's always looking at the next level of experience beyond the scene experience. So, if he's not, if he, if he, if David came up to you and he was very, did you ever meet him?
0: Yeah.
1: You did. Did he ever come uh, here?
0: No, it wasn't. It was in New York.
1: And what was your just curious? What was your um, experience of, of talking to him? I think it was. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, very smart, very polite. Seems like everyone else wants to run the fuck out of it. Right. Um, you know, these were, those events were difficult for David. I mean, they're difficult for for I think everybody, but for David, I think they were they were difficult in a kind of a, a, a an extra way. Because so, David, if David had were sort of come up to to you, you know, uh, and he was polite, then the question he would immediately be asking himself was, was he being polite? you know, in order to manipulate you into liking him, which in fact was like a greater form of rudeness than if it was just actually his, his his needy, you know, slathering self and just jumped up on down you and said, like me, like me, love me, love me, you know? So for David, um, those characters are obviously him. I mean, there's a letter I quote, but I mean, I should say, you know, I'm not, I'm n- I'm not a biographer who thinks that the fact that somebody writes a book and you can find the house that they wrote about and it looks like the house that they put in the book is actually a major find. I mean, there's a wonderful Saul Bellow line from that same interview where there was a guy named, I think, Dave Peltz, and Dave Peltz kept insisting that one of the wonderful stories in Bellow's collection, him with his his foot in his hat, him with his foot in his hat? No, that's the Oliver Sacks. I forget the name. What's the name of that? (laughs) Anyone know the name of the... Saul Bellow stories, him with his foot in his mouth. Anyway, it doesn't matter. It was a Bellow collection. So this guy had, like, told him a story, and it's wonderfully transmuted. It's, it's it's in a Bellow story. And, you know, Saul, I, I was just bringing this up, and, and Bellow said, well, you know, he told me a story. The idea being, like, everything of value, everything special really came from what Bellow had done with it. I mean, I think, you know... In the same way, you know, the the basis for these characters is, you know, is David. I mean, there's a letter where David writes uh, to someone and says, like, after having finished brief interviews, I f- I'm having to deal with some of the less attractive, re- recognize some of the less, less attractive parts of my own personality. Um, I'm sure some of the stories come from, me- you know, 12-step meetings, clearly. And some probably from people who are... Who are Unwise enough to confide in David, um, only to find their stories popping up, you know, years later. Um, David was not like a very. And David was a very creative writer. He wasn't a very imaginative writer in the in the sort of literal sense of like, you know, I'll sit here and I'll, I'll think up a place I've never been and a thing I've never done. I mean, Granada House looks a lot like um, the Enid House in the in Infinite Justice. Like Granada House, and these these guys, you know one way or another are probably, you know, by and large, how David David was full of self self-hatred, are probably by and large, you know, the way David saw himself. He also did a lot of therapy. You know, there's a therapy structure to the stories. I think that probably comes out. If you notice, but how many of the fun parlour games, how many of the therapists in David's stories die? <laughs> there's a therapist in the depressed person who dies. There's a therapist in um I think in good old neon the therapist dies anyway that'll you know take that to your therapist right <laughs> um so I think the short answer is they're him the larger answer is they're you know they're 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 David's wonderful big aggressive, highly negative imagination you know playing on the facts of his own personality uh, and his own behavior um, uh you know, and the whole issue of seduction and addiction are so central to him. What those stories are about, in part, is you know, is about men who are addicted to seduction. He saw himself that way. Um, he he went. I think he went to a sex addict thing at some point. I mean, you know, I, I'm not saying that's a diagnosis. He went. He self-diagnosed with it. But I think that that's uh, that. You know, he saw those first and foremost coming out of it. His own experience and his, I think his own difficulty in kind of liking himself is very evident you know in that book it's It's a beautiful book actually, but you know one of the reasons i I was glad I wrote this biography was one of my tests was you know when I was done with the biography, would I still want to read David's writing or would it be one of these situations where you're like you know I can't stand to look at that guy's books again you know I've read them too often and and I'm done, and I don't feel that way at all i mean Actually, the book I would pick up first would be Brief Interviews, which I just find is a book that you can read again and again. It's got lots of fascinating things in it that I would really, really recommend to anyone who's never had the the intense and very strange pleasure of reading it. Thank you, guys. Thank you.